Good evening, everybody. I want to welcome everybody to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. The day is February 18th. The year is 2021. We're going to be doing Organization and Structure of the Communist Party. Talks about how Communist Party is organized, how it's structured. So tonight we're going to go over its general principles, democratic centralism, and as well as the duties that being in the Communist Party entails. The organization of the party must be adapted to the conditions and to the goal of its activity. The Communist Party must be the vanguard, the advanced post of the proletariat through all the phases of the revolutionary class struggle and during the subsequent transition period towards the realization of socialism, i.e. the first stage of the communist society. There can be no absolutely infallible and unalterable form of organization for the Communist Party. The conditions of the proletarian class struggle are subject to changes in a continuous process of evolution. And in accordance with these changes, the organization of the proletarian vanguard must be constantly seeking the corresponding forms. The peculiar conditions of every individual country likewise determine the special adaption of the forms of organization of the respective parties. But this differentiation has definite limits. Regardless of all peculiarities, the quality of the conditions of the proletarian class struggle in the various countries and in the various phases of the proletarian revolution is of fundamental importance to the international communist movement, creating a common basis for the organization of the communist parties in all countries. Upon this basis, it is necessary to develop the organization of the communist parties, but not to seek to establish any new model parties instead of pre-existing ones and to aim at any absolutely correct form of organization and ideal constitutions. Most communist parties, and consequently the Communist International, the former United Party of the revolutionary world proletariat, have had the common feature in the conditions of their struggle of still needing to fight against the dominant bourgeoisie. To conquer the bourgeoisie and to wrest the power from its hands is for all of them until further developments, the determining factor in the organizing activity of the communist parties in the capitalist countries must be the upbuilding of such organizations as will make the victory of the proletarian revolution over the possessing classes both possible and secure. So essentially the first three paragraphs are saying we must adapt our strategy and the identity of the party to the material conditions, right? Essentially we need to have socialism with American characteristics. No, that is not correct. Otherwise it would have said that. It actually would have said those words. Listen to this paragraph. This differentiation has definite limits. Whenever you see a but in a sentence, it qualifies what it said before. So this differentiation has definite limits, regardless of all the peculiarities. In other words, all the differences. Regardless of that, the quality of the conditions of the class struggle in each of the countries and through the various different phases of the revolution. It's of fundamental importance to the whole international communist movement that we're creating a common basis. That term, common basis, is everything. A common basis 
for the organization of the parties in all the countries. So that paragraph is deliberately put there by the framers of this, the common turn, because it actually qualifies the first part of the sentence. But this differentiation, this so-called with American characteristics, it has definite limits. Regardless of all the different characteristics, they use the word peculiarities, same thing. The quality of the conditions of the class struggle in all these countries is of fundamental importance to the international communist movement. And then it says creating a common basis, that's the key term, for the organization of the party in all the countries. Talking about the peculiarities of it and how despite them, the conditions are the same, we have to look at Marxism-Leninism as a science. And something we have to remember about science is in scientific theories, there are also certain laws in science. There's the law of relativity and such. So we have to remember that, comrades. Some people would say that that's dogmatism. There's a difference between dogmatism and following scientific laws. Something about socialism with a certain type of characteristics made me think of the Hungary classes that we did. Something that's called goulash communism. And it's goulash communism because goulash is a dish that originated in Hungary. And the idea was that it was socialism with a Hungarian flavor. It was very much one of the key pillars of the split in the Hungarian party. The idea is that this national communism or with whatever certain flavor or characteristics, the whole premise of it was that one aspect or another of Marxist-Leninist-based principles would be compromised. That's the foundational, fundamental sort of understanding that should be taken away from something like goulash communism or communism with a certain type of characteristics. People may have interpreted that slogan in a different format, but the historical context is that those people who wanted to implement that sort of system were compromising base Marxist-Leninist principles. So that should be the historical context that's added to that idea. Goulash communism refers to something that in Hungary was actually specifically referred to as Kadarism. It was sometimes called communism with a Hungarian flavor. And what it was initially meant to be was a recovery from what had happened in the 50s, the general economic issues that happened, the counter-revolution and everything. And initially, it did not start out as this national communist idea. It initially started out just as a market reform, which is not the same thing as market socialism. It was just some reforms that happened to try and fix things. What ended up happening by the late 70s, early 80s, as Kadar got older, lost more power, was that the liberals, the reformists, took over, and they wanted to give it national characteristics, because that was something that Khrushchev spoke on. He spoke on the need for each communist country to have their own national characteristics imbued within their socialism. So that's the idea of goulash communism. I think it's very important to realize and acknowledge what is being said in the first sentence. It says, the organization of the party must be adapted to the conditions and the goal of its activity. It does not say that the party itself must be adapted or altered 
to fit its conditions, but rather that the way in which we coordinate and plan our strategies and tactics, this is directly influenced by our given circumstances. Our goal and ultimate accomplishment of communism does not change. I notice that many of the parties, starting with the CPUSA, have abandoned a vanguard concept. And I question how can they consider themselves communists when they don't want to be the vanguard party. They dropped Leninism from their name and only refer to Lenin in special cases now. And they're not the only ones. I mean, the other parties, such as Freedom Road or organizations like that, don't refer to Marxism, Leninism, or the vanguard concept. I was wondering, how do they justify their existence? My understanding is they claim that the new realities of today are different than they were in the past. And we have to look at things differently. I want you all to know that that thought came from two other people in history. One was from the book that I read from Earl Browder, in which he was saying there are new realities today and we have to do things differently. He said that in the middle of the popular front period. And that's why he and others did what they did for changing the name of the party to an association. But the other person who did that, who talked about new realities and new thinking, the other word was new thinking, was Gorbachev. With his presentation of Perestroika, he called it new thinking and new realities. And so every time I hear that, I'm very wary of it. It can be appropriate and it cannot be appropriate. So be careful of people who say that things are different now. We have computers. This is not 1890. This is not 1918. Beware of those comrades, in my opinion, because they're on the road to changing and revising our ideology. Leadership is a necessary condition for any common action. But most of all, it is indispensable in the greatest fight in the world's history. The organization of the Communist Party is the organization of communist leadership in the proletarian revolution. To be a good leader in the proletarian revolution, the party itself must have good leadership. Accordingly, the principal tasks of our organizational work must be the education, organization, and training of efficient party members under the capable directing organs to the leading place in the proletarian revolutionary movement. The leadership in the revolutionary class struggle presupposes the organic combination of the greatest possible striking force and of the greatest adaptability on the part of the Communist Party and its leading organs to the ever-changing conditions of the struggle. Furthermore, successful leadership requires absolutely the closest association with the proletarian masses. Without such association, the leadership will not lead the masses, but will at best tail behind the masses. The organic unity of the Communist Party organization must be attained through democratic centralization. What are some good examples of how you can stay in close tie with the proletarian masses? Join unions, is that an example? Number one is, let's be realistic about this. We're not going to be in contact with the masses if we're in our room on our computer. Let's be honest. We're going to have to get out of what we call our comfort zone. It's difficult, comrade. 
it's difficult. It was difficult for me. Most of us are brought up, most of us, as introverts. We have to try to get away from that. I forced myself to become an extrovert because of the party. If it wasn't for the party, I would still be an introvert. So that's the answer. Get out among the masses. The unions are one thing. And the issues that are facing the masses. Get involved in organizations that the masses are trying to build. I think it's that simple. Thank you. I echo what Comrade Angelo was saying. I am a little bit more extroverted by nature, but I still find it hard to talk about issues facing my fellow workers just because I'm nervous to their response. I just wanted to reiterate Comrade Angelo's point about getting out and getting off the computer. I do think that there is a lot to be said about very basic stuff, like, for example, shoveling snow for your neighbors and stuff like that, just talking to people on the street. And I think that is a lot of it, because when people hear about communists, they don't think that they're real people. They just have, like, an image that has been created by the media. They don't know that, for example, your neighbors don't know that you're a communist, and they might not know any communists. And when you know a communist, it humanizes communism. I think that's a big thing that we need to work on. I've heard this phrase before. So without such association, the leadership will not lead the masses, but will at best tail behind the masses. And I had heard this described when I had been in another Communist Party years ago. And I learned that some of the major issues that I had with the party, with the leadership of the party, were rooted in the fact that it was not a Marxist-Leninist party. It was a party that wanted to be Marxist-Leninist and thought, okay, well, now we support what the Soviet Union did in Hungary, so we're Marxist-Leninist without actually applying democratic centralism. And I found that many of the work that we were doing was just going to protests, organizing with anarchists for anti-police actions, getting arrested and spending money to free the anarchists. It definitely felt like some tailing the masses. And that's also, unfortunately, a lot of what the movement is in New York City. And so I'm excited to be in this party and to learn how to get out of the movement and to get into the masses and get into local organizations where there isn't the quote-unquote movement. In terms of good leadership, good leadership requires good cadre to have good leadership. Obviously, the cadre have to have faith in the leadership, and the leadership have to have faith in the cadre. There has to be work back and forth between the two to build trust, build unity, and you have to be able to build loyalty to the party, to your comrades, so that you have leaders who are loyal to their cadre and you have cadre who are loyal to the leadership and able to trust the leadership to do what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it. I want to read a little section from a speech Stalin gave on the CPUSA in 1929 during the factional dispute between Foster and Lovestone. It says, it would be wrong to ignore the specific peculiarities of American capitalism. The Communist Party and its work must take them into account. But it would be still more wrong to base the activities of the Communist Party on these specific features, since the foundation of the activities of every Communist Party, including the American Communist Party, on which it must base itself, must be the general features of capitalism, which are the same for all countries, and not its specific features in any given country. It is on this that the internationalism of the Communist Party is founded.
specific features are only supplemental to the general features. The part about the party requiring a close association with the masses or else we risk tailing the masses is very important and obviously that makes me think of Mao and the mass line and that's one kind of hang up I've always had with Marxism, Leninism, Maoism and saying that he brought all new things because when I go back and I read a lot of the literature from before Mao's time, there was already that emphasis on being closely associated with the masses and following what they want and being always engaged with them and not separating the party from them in that way where it's like we don't listen to what they have to say and all that sort of thing. So I think it's a strong tradition that goes back quite far and it is absolutely necessary. How do you develop those necessary connections with the working class for a party that's just coming out now? I guess we don't have those established connections, or do we? Second thing is, I expect the next section to go into more detail, but can I just get some more information on the relationship between the organic nature of the party in connection to democratic centralism and its limitations as well as what it can do? If we look at the history of the CP, especially during its initial founding, we can see that it was a political agitational party mainly, and that much of its work was revolving around developing its ideology and the ideology of its cadre members through political agitation and through the development of the theory within the party. And it took for the party to actually break out into the masses and into the struggles of the workers to actually partake in those struggles and to start leading the workers within their unions, within the organization attempts to form new unions, and by getting the party in the basic industries and in the key industries of the economy. One was the dictatorship of the proletariat or the vanguard role of the industrial proletariat. I think the literature dates back, decades back, and the conditions, especially the scientific and technological revolutions, have really gone beyond belief. Because even look at China, it's a very archaic, is a feudal kind of communism that was taking place. But in terms of catching up, the West, I couldn't believe I was watching a documentary about the progress of China in terms of uh, its productive capacity and the People's Liberation Army. They are way ahead compared to the working masses in the West. So I think given those variants or changes after articulation the dictatorship of the proletariat, we have to reevaluate the conditions of the vanguard proletariat in the West because we've seen the working classes in the West seem to be backward compared to what's happening globally. And they always attack China or China is destroying the United States and the rally behind the corporate capital. I think we have to critically evaluate the conditions of the vanguard party in North America and Europe, Western Europe in particular. We'll begin chapter two, which is titled On Democratic Centralism. Democratic centralism in the Communist Party organization should be a real synthesis, a fusion of centralism and proletarian democracy. This fusion can be achieved only on the basis of constant common activity and of the constant common struggle of the entire party organization. Centralization in the Communist Party organization 
does not mean a formal and mechanical centralization, but rather a centralization of communist activities. That is to say, the formation of strong leadership, quick to react and at the same time capable of adaptability. A formal or mechanical centralization would mean centralization of the power of the party in the hands of a bureaucracy dominating over the rest of the membership or the masses of the revolutionary proletariat outside the party. Only enemies of communists can assert that the Communist Party conducting the proletarian class struggle and centralizing the communist leadership is trying to rule over the revolutionary proletariat. Such an assertion is a lie. Neither is any rivalry for power, nor any contest for supremacy within the party at all compatible with what were the fundamental principles of democratic centralism adopted by the Communist International. In the organization of the old non-revolutionary labor movement, there has developed an all-pervading dualism of the same nature as that of the bourgeois state, namely the dualism between the bureaucracy and the people. Under this destructive influence of the bourgeois environment, there has developed a separation of functions, a substitution of barren formal democracy for the living association of common endeavor, in the splitting up of the organization into active functionaries and passive masses. Even the revolutionary labor inevitability inherits this tendency to dualism and formalism to a certain extent from the bourgeois environment. This part reminds me of all the people who say, oh, the communists just want power. And Parenti talks about this a lot, where people that are giving them power are usually the powerless. And one thing that is funny to me is that if you think about Stalin, for example, or Mao, Zhou Enlai, or even the Cubans with Fidel and Che, you are looking at people who are generally running away from the big powers and whatnot. And the people who prop them up and give them the power are the people. You look at Mao, for example, I think there was a figure I saw one time that said probably about 80% of the peasants supported Mao. And that seems pretty obvious given that they were running from the KMT, they were running from the Japanese. And so these ideas that we're just in it for power don't really make a lot of sense. Also, Stalin went to jail several times. He didn't have to do that. My point, I guess, is if you look at Mao and all these guys, they're saying that there's a guarantee that they're going to be getting power. There's no guarantee because the power against them is much stronger than what they are bringing out. The Cubans had like 100 guys or even less. Same with Mao and same with Stalin. I mean, it was just a big struggle. So people see that and they appreciate that. If you want to get power, don't become a leftist. The history of leftism is losing and losing and losing and losing, and maybe every once in a while you'll win. So if Stalin or Mao really wanted to gain power, they would have just worked within the current system that was in place already during their time. But I want to talk about leadership. I want to recommend to everyone a great book. It's not a leftist book. It's not a socialist book, but it's something that we had to read in the army. It's called Leaders Eat Last, and it talks about what it means to be a leader, what it means to look out for the people under you, and what it means to guide them. So I think that would be a great recommendation for everyone to check out. It's a bit long, but you don't have to read the whole thing. If we allow ourselves to become lax, then that sort of dualism will happen. I'm a teacher, and under our NJEA union, 
we don't really hold elections anymore. Like the entire union leadership is almost an entire separate being compared to the actual members of the union. And that's a problem. And that's one of the reasons why unions are struggling so much every day, because there is no democracy within unions anymore. It seems interesting that this portion of democratic centralism is talking about the dualism between the bureaucracy and the people. And it seems like it's kind of hinting at an older idea, not necessarily a socialist one, but in terms of the right of the governed. Colonial times here in America, where it was talking about how the people, we give our government the right to govern us. And I don't know if this idea sort of dates back to that same theory, the formation of our country, but it just seemed kind of interesting that the two, in my mind, seem related, but I'm not necessarily sure if they are. I think the emphasis on constant common struggle and activity as a way to prevent an overly bureaucratic structure speaks to the party being a living, breathing body, which will then be able to achieve communism. Similar to the human body where all different cells must carry out their very necessary duties and functions to achieve and maintain the beautiful accomplishment of life. One part that stuck out to me was in the organization of the old non-revolutionary labor movement, there has developed an all-pervading dualism of the same nature as that of the bourgeois state, namely the dualism between the bureaucracy and the people. It reminds me about the conditions of the labor movement here between the craft unions and like the Knights of Labor, and then the push for the unionization of the basic industries with the CIO. It really speaks to me a little bit about how different a communist party functions than what we're used to in a capitalist society. And I think we really need to take to heart a lot of that because this is something that we're not used to. We haven't grown up. We haven't lived this. This is something out of our comfort zone. And we really need to adapt ourselves to the needs of what this party and the functioning of this party needs for us to help see this succeed. A couple of questions. One being clarification on the exact criticisms that we have of bureaucracy as a Marxist one in its party. And you're also talking about people revising, and I don't want us to not be creative in adapting to the times that we have now. It doesn't mean that we abandon our principles, not be Marxist one enough by God. We can't just stick our heads in the sand either. There's actually something that is addressed by Lenin in State and Revolution about that. He talks about the abolishment of parliamentarism. And when he talks about that, he talks about how the bureaucratic bodies essentially are also working bodies. So it's people who both make decisions and have these discussions and votes, but they also actually do the work. For the first part about bureaucracy, we spoke last week about being able to be thinking individuals and being able to see the different situations of the party and party members, and we don't just kick them out. That's something that's different from what we think of as an unfeeling bureaucracy and just following rules. And we're actually people and we see each other as people. We do work and we do have some functions that look similar to bureaucracy, but it's not. We are humans and we act like humans, which I think is what's different. And then when we talk about being anti-revisionist, but we don't want to be dogmatists, we also spoke a little bit about that last week, where we go in and we need to make sure that what we're doing fits the material conditions 
But then we also have to criticize ourselves and be like, are we actually following what needs to happen in the material conditions? Or are we just doing things to be opportunists or to suit ourselves as individuals? And that's what stops us from being revisionists. In the section that we're discussing, it talks about the all-pervading dualism of the same nature as that of the bourgeois state, namely the dualism between the bureaucracy and the people. And here the bureaucracy that's in question is serving as a stopgap for the people. It's preventing the popular will of the workers from actually threatening the class position of the bourgeoisie. And it says, under this destructive influence of the bourgeois environment, there is developed a separation of function, substitution of barren formal democracy. And that's a description of what bureaucracy is. I think I seem to come up with different points of view because I try to be flexible and creative in relation to the working class movement in the West and North America. And I think one of the problems I'm facing is that the strategy of the industrialization of North America and Western Europe is against the interests of the working class, against the communist movement. Because if we do not have a solid working class, especially industrial proletariat, that is the vanguard component of the working class, as Lenin consistently indicated. But the international bourgeoisie is destroying manufacturing systematically by outsourcing and other legal means, like the way that Trump tried and other leaders before him tried. So as in 1975, the United States had about 15 million members of AFL-CIO. I think that was a very important number at that time. But now, what is the status of that number? And also, as a vanguard party, we have to take into consideration the reaction of the working masses towards our movement, especially working classes in the manufacturing, because they are the most advanced section of the proletarian revolution, and that is the party, that is a major party, a social force that the communist revolution or party is supposed to lead. Towards of that, we have to really evaluate what's going on. Is there a solid working class to be laid by the communist party? Yes or no? Is a critical analysis of existing conditions is very important. The Communist Party must fundamentally overcome these contrasts by systematic and persevering political and organizational work and by constant improvement and correction. Centralization should not merely exist on paper, but be actually carried out, and this is a possible achievement only when the members at large will feel this authority as a fundamentally efficient instrument in their common activity and struggle. Otherwise, it will appear to the masses as a bureaucracy within the party and, therefore, likely to simulate opposition to all centralization, to all leadership, to all stringent discipline. Anarchism is the opposite pole of bureaucracy. Merely formal democracy in the organization cannot remove either bureaucratic or anarchical tendencies, both of which have found fertile soil on the basis of that very democracy. Therefore, the centralization of the organization, that is to say, the aim to create a strong leadership, cannot be successful if its achievement is sought on the basis of formal democracy. The necessary preliminary conditions are the development and maintenance of living associations and mutual relations within the party between the directing organs and members, 
as well as between the party and the masses of the proletariat outside the party. I thought it was very interesting how in this section they highlight the fact that bureaucracy and anarchical tendencies are kind of dialectically connected, where if an organization becomes bureaucratic, it will engender the anarchic tendencies of certain elements of the rank and file if it's not fixed. And I think I've witnessed that myself in social democratic organizations I've been a part of where the leadership's really hard to get a hold of. So people start wanting to do things on their own and they start resenting the decision and it engenders not a democratic centralism, but instead an anarchistic tendency. So I think it's really interesting this constant need during the development of an organization, even if we call ourselves democratic centralists, to manage that contradiction. And I wish there was more elaboration on that last piece. And maybe somebody here could elaborate where it talks about having to connect the direct organs of the party with the members. That's one of the things that the organizational department has been working on. It's something that leadership in general, especially the district organizers, work on. For example, when I was a district organizer, something I would do is when I was on interviews with people, I talked to them about the different commissions and such. I'd try and get them into a commission. I'd talk to them about club work and such. I would help people in the club. That's something that the district organizers do now. That's something that the club chairs do. They help people get into commissions. People in the commissions, the leaders in the commissions, help the people in the commissions. The higher leadership helps the district organizers and the rest of the party with doing different party work, setting up work groups for the different organizations within the party, that sort of stuff. Our conditions of the U.S. and the capitalist system is probably going to be a much bigger priority than we ever think. What we've been doing, and I have taken this opportunity saying, okay, we have COVID, but boy, we first have to really publish and create an identity. I've talked to a lot of people, and I know that they feel the same way too. We have to establish ourselves as a voice. Only way we're going to do is what we are doing, is publishing. And then there's the factor of distribution. And as Angel has said before, somebody distributes 10 copies of labor today, and he gets three outreaches saying, I am interested. And I see no problem with us still using this mechanism while we all can't hit the streets, so to speak. I think this is a very good mechanism. People right now really need to want to grab and read something physical in their hand instead of on the media. They read it in their hand, and then they go to the website, and then they say, hey, can I learn more? I just think that that's a valuable way of outreaching when we can't hit the streets. I'm looking for more of a definition of formal democracy and perhaps an example as opposed to, say, a structure of democratic centralism versus, say, how a party would be structured under a formal democracy. They say formal democracy. What I think they're describing is the bourgeois concept of voting on every issue, and if you don't vote on every issue, therefore it's not democratic. And if certain bodies vote on certain issues and other bodies vote on other issues, Therefore, somehow that's not democratic. I feel like that's the formal democracy aspect, like DSA. It's a very decentralized organization, but 
they don't have any sort of structure like a Leninist party has. It's very much everyone gets to have their own opinion, and there's no sort of accountability for once an opinion is carried out or a decision is carried out, being able to adhere to it in a collective way. Does anyone have any extra on that? I think that what they're talking about is very anarchistic and more bourgeois tendencies of democracy, which see democracy only in terms of the individual, where you see democracy as one person, one vote, and an endless bureaucratic administration that in the anarchistic sense will never come to be, or in the bourgeois sense is just freedom for those who control the means of production. Whereas socialist democracy and proletarian democracy are real class democracies that will create the emancipation of all classes. I would just add that it's more this idea of a formal democracy in line with a bourgeois democracy or some sort of non-proletarian democracy or anarchistic. It's very idealistic, the idea that you start with the principle, the idealistic principle of democracy, and then move back to the material foundations. I hope you can sort of visualize this, but democratic centralism starts with the material foundations. They go, okay, what needs to be carried out? How does it need to be carried out? What's the best way to carry it out? That's not where a lot of these other groups start. The other groups start, okay, here's our ideal version of democracy. Here's what's in our head. Here's the pretty image that we have. How do we do our best to stick to the pretty image? Even if the results end up being completely foreign to what we say that our beliefs are, or even if the results end up making things worse, we still care about the idea enough to have it override a lot of these actual, more formal, constructive, maybe not everyone gets to vote on every issue, but a structured, efficient way of democracy, which we would consider proletarian democracy, but that would be my addition to that. It was brought up earlier, wondering about how the parties connected to the masses, and it reminded me of this very short section. This is from Soviet Democracy by Pat Sloan. Pat Sloan was a British school teacher who was from the United Kingdom, worked in the USSR from 1931 to 1936, and recounts his experiences in what was supposed to be a totalitarian nightmare, but ended up being something far more democratic than he could have imagined. So he says, the individual membership of the Labour Party in Britain amounts today to between 300,000 and 400,000. But it probably would not be going too far to estimate that less than 1 in 20 of these are active members, so that the proportion of the Labour Party, which is strictly comparable to the membership of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, is about 5%, even though the Communist Party of the Soviet Union is all active. The membership of the British Labour Party that is active and doing party work amounts to anywhere between 15,000 and 20,000 people. Yet, if a labor government were returned to power, I cannot imagine anyone complaining that the party did not represent the people, quote-unquote, because it is too small. The Communist Party of the USSR includes 2 million members, one in every 85 citizens. So while the Labor Party in Britain may boast of its size and claim one active worker for every 2,000 or 3,000, the Communist Party in the Soviet Union is criticized as underrepresentative because it represents one in every 85 citizens. That gives a good context to this comparison between how a party is connected to the masses in a bourgeois society and how it's connected in a socialist society. It is online, you can find it. And he described the differences between his experience as an educator in the United Kingdom and his experience as an educator in the USSR and how he was able to attend worker meetings, how he was able to interact with party members and party cadre, and he discusses his general experiences as well as the general tenets with which Soviet society operated on. The ratio of communists in countries, I think in the Soviet Union, 1980s, there was something like 17 million 
in the Communist Party and the Soviet Union. So it worked out that pretty much like one in 10 workers was actually in the party. So that's kind of an advancement, I think, by that time. Unfortunately, a lot of them, this was the way to further their career is to also be a party member. But of course, in this country, we don't have to worry about that, at least yet. And I think it's important to note that Gus Hall used to say that one person out of a thousand is already one of us, is already a communist, and we just have to come in contact with him. I think as things have also progressed among the working class in this country, I think people are ready to listen to anybody that can really talk about what socialism is. One of the foundations of Lenin's thought is that we have to take over the state in order to bring about socialism and communism. It's a similar thing with bureaucracy, because bureaucracy is kind of like the machinery of the state or how the state functions for day-to-day things. And we're going to have to do certain bureaucratic things, crunching numbers, giving orders, all that sort of stuff. But state and bureaucracy and socialism function completely and utterly differently from how it does in bourgeois society, obviously, through that connection to the masses, that self-criticism and the constant correction and having that clear goal in mind of transitioning society as a whole. In the reading, it mentioned anarchism. And I know that being a young person, I know a lot of people who are anarchists. And I was just curious about the reason why anarchism might be counter-revolutionary, especially within a Marxist-Leninist state. I do know that on the People School YouTube channel, we do have a class on Antifa. The background of Antifa, its origins as something that was initially intended to be self-defense for left-wing groups in Germany during the rise of Hitlerites, the fascists. Does someone have any further explanations for why anarchism can show counter-revolutionary tendencies? One of the things that Marx and Lenin and Stalin all say is that capitalism is anarchy in production. Capitalism is anarchy in production. And there's a reason why they put it that way. It's because anarchism is the antithesis of a centralized planned economy. It's the opposite. It's bedded and lives in individualism. Without individualism, anarchy would die. And our country is a predominant soil. It's very hard to build a collective movement here on any issue because individualism is so strong. The tendency to mistrust leadership in in party, the tendency to mistrust leaders is identical to the ruling class. The first thing the ruling class does on the repression is to cut off the heads of the mass organizations, which means the individual of the mass organization. Because once the individual is gone and the leadership is gone, then the mass organization shrivels up and dies. That's what happened in the McCarthy period. That's what happened in the Palmer raids in the 20s. It's an old tactic. So you'll find that there's a common coming together between individuals who call themselves radicals and the ruling class, who supposedly is opposed to radicals. They both come together with attacking the leadership of a Bolshevik party. I think you should all find that interesting 
and strange at the same time. Something that Comrade said, it made me think different about anarchism, and he related it to the idea of individualism. And growing up in the U.S., going through the American education system and just through pop culture and media and whatnot, you get ingrained in that individuality of liberalism, even all the way through college. And it's great to hear some pushback from that. And what that is, is what the Communist Party does, which is what we were talking about, discipline and self-crit. We're not here to make our little individual feelings not hurt. We're here to improve society and community, communism. In regards to anarchism, there's both collective as well as individualistic, but they do share the sense of adventurism, which is also shared by ultra-leftists. And anarchism particularly has this disregard for vertical authority. About anarchism, from my experience, some of the defining features, or one of the defining features, is the emphasis on critique and criticism. There's nothing wrong inherently with critique and criticism, but anarchism and like movements, that's what they tend to focus on, exposing this and that, undermining this and that. But I think it's really important when you come across these sites or groups to see what they are for. What do they want to build? How do they want to build it? Rather than just their moral arguments and their critiques. The Communist Party must be a training school for revolutionary Marxism. The organic ties between the different parts of the organization and the membership become joined through the daily common work in the party activities. Regular participation on the part of most of the members in the daily work of the parties is lacking even today in lawful communist parties. That is the chief fault of these parties, forming the basis of constant insecurity in their development. In the first stages of its communist transformation, every communist party is in danger of being content with having accepted a communist program, with having substituted the old doctrine in its propaganda by communist teaching, and having replaced the official belonging to the hostile camp by communist officials. The acceptance of the communist program is only the expression of the will to become a communist. If the communist activity is lacking and the passivity of the mass member still remains, then the party does not fulfill even the least part of the pledge it had taken upon itself in accepting the communist program. The first condition of an earnest carrying out of the program is the participation of all the members in the constant daily work of the party. The art of communist organization lies in the ability to make use of each and every party member for the proletarian class struggle. It lies in distributing party work amongst all party members and of constantly attracting, through its members, ever wider masses of the proletariat to the revolutionary movement. Further, it must hold the direction of the whole movement in its hands, not by virtue of its might, but by its authority energy, greater experience, greater all-around knowledge, and capabilities. A Communist Party must strive to have only really active members and to demand from every rank-and-file party worker that they should place their whole strength and time insofar as they can under existing conditions 
to be at the disposal of their party and to devote their best forces to these services. Membership in a communist party naturally entails, aside from personal communist convictions and formal registrations as a candidate and subsequent member, the regular payment of the established fees, the subscription to the newspaper, etc. For the purpose of carrying out the party work, every party member must, as a rule, always be a member of a smaller working group, a committee, a commission, a board, etc. Only in this way can party work be properly distributed, directed, and carried out. When I was listening to this, I was thinking about how capitalism reproduces itself, and it's through the profit incentive. It is through privatization and primitive accumulation, where if we want to move to a different form of production, we really have to think about how we do that. And it seems like from what we just read here, I have the aha moment. It's through party activism. It is literally through dedication, our constant movement to connect to the proletariat and the working masses and the people, really. That is how we reproduce our new form of production, is that connection. The revolution doesn't end at the victory of the revolution. You write the constitution, you set up the government, the revolution isn't over. And so it's exactly what needs to happen is party work. We need to be constantly working and using our ability, being active, and we can't rest on our laurels. That's exactly what's being said. So just keep that in mind. You mentioned that capitalism is particular. Our relationship to means production affects our behavior, what we think, what we're capable of thinking. And the means of production are controlled by the ruling class, so they influence all the institutions which we live in, thus influencing our thought and behavior. And it's our job to raise the class consciousness of the working class to support revolutionary situation. I think one thing to remember with all this is that this is in the earlier days of the Soviet Union when these conclusions were made. And whether or not they were totally correct is up for consideration because there was advancements being made in the Soviet Union all the way up until the counter-revolution. So there were things that may have worked fine at one stage of socialism, but after decades, other ways were found to be more productive for everyone. And I think that's something we should also consider as well as in this country, we have our own historical political history and political culture. And when we have socialism, we may do things different that's going to work here that wouldn't work anywhere else, perhaps. So a lot of considerations to look at as well. The passage mentions how, as members of the party, we're engaged in two types of work, which are work on more of a national level and work on a local level. Should we be prioritizing either of these two forms of work, and how do we balance the two of them? We really need to focus on local levels. Local work, like running politicians, running comrades in elections, stuff like that. Going in, talking to people in the factories, talking to your coworkers, talking to those things, and we got to build up our 
membership. We got to build up our local strength. And honestly, I think that's going to be the thing that gives us the support and the stability rather than just broadcasting ourselves out nationally and saying, hey, look at us. I don't want to repeat, but I would like some remarks by Comrade. He's a senior fighter in the working class movement, and he has direct empirical experience about the decline and rise of the working class movement. And what does he say as a senior politician and theoretician of the communist movement about this current situation of the working class, especially industrial proletariat in this country? The technology and the technological revolution, specifically in the computer age, has changed a lot. But it has not taken away from what Comrade Marx said originally, and that is the working class is the only class in society that has the capability, listen to the words, to bring out a social revolution. That's what Marx said clearly. He didn't say that the workers are born revolutionary. He never said that. In fact, most of the revolutionary thought has come from, in many cases, petty bourgeois elements. Lenin and Stalin were considered in their societies part of a petty bourgeois element. But the only ones who could collectively change it is the working class, the ones that are the closest to the means of production, which is yes. land the factory, natural resources, etc. But when that becomes lessened, we have to go to other elements of the working class. And that's what we have in our society right now. Social services, offices, those are the areas we have to organize into unions now because we're at a different stage in the Industrial Revolution, a different stage now. But the answer is the working class is still the only one. And we cannot go to any other class that's going to be capable of carrying out a social revolution. If the teachers go on strike, inside the walls of the school, there's no activity going on. But outside, society functions as normal. But if you have a strike with the factory workers, with the taxi drivers, with the bus drivers, if they all go on strike, what happens to that society? And that's why in this country we have laws against the general strike, whereas in Europe they have the general strike. Because the bourgeoisie here is afraid of it. The Taft-Hartley law, which most people don't understand, is opposed yeah, to federal workers going on strike. We've got to deal with what we have. It's important that we're talking about democratic centralism. I can't express how important that is. I would say about 90% of the people on this phone call say they support democratic centralism. But when push comes to shove, all of a sudden you're going to see something different, comrades. You're going to see people putting their own ethical, moral, religious views above the collective. So it's easy to talk about democratic centralism. It's another thing to follow it. One of the things we need to follow is discipline. How many of us brought up in this society, capitalism, individualism, how many of us have discipline? Think about it. Seriously, think about that. How many have discipline to ourselves, let alone discipline? to a collective party, and that seems to be the problem. When we joined this party, we knew what we were joining, supposedly, and that was a disciplined, democratic centralized formation that had a constitution that was elected and written by the membership. 
How many of the people in this phone call know our constitution of our party? I wonder about that. That's all I want to add to the conversation. I heard a couple people raise the concern about times being different and so us having to do things differently. And I just would like to remind people, though, that the contradictions of capitalism are still the same as they always have been. And the proletariat is still who we need to reach. And we can still learn a lot about how to do that reading from Stalin and Lenin, as well as even some more of the modern people, if you want. I think the problem mentioned vis-a-vis the communist vanguard of the social revolution in North America or elsewhere, and unless a party has discipline, it's like an army without discipline, without training. So I think the whole idea of forming a communist party is to go through a period of criticism, self-criticism, criticism to wipe out disciplinary problems in the party. On the general subject of discipline, at least in my experience among people my age in modern America, there's a very undisciplined attitude towards much of life, towards not wanting to do a lot of work either for the community or even for yourself. Discipline is very important towards keeping a functioning party as well as just living a functional life if you aren't focused on goals and working towards things, you tend to drift off in meaningless, meandering life. The last section that we read was talking about the importance of having every member of the Communist Party working as some sort of a group or a committee or something like that. Is that specifically for countries that haven't had the revolution happen, or would that also apply to countries that are already in a state of socialism? And if so, how does that work in a country like the USSR, where you have a large population of people? How do they organize people working with different committees and stuff like that? The answer is, is that the party that we're building now is becoming the structure of the society of tomorrow. It really does not stop. Socialism is just a transitionary phase, and we have to continue, even if we succeed into becoming a socialist nation. You have to continue the revolution past that, continue uh, society and working towards communism. With reading this, we also should take notice that this kind of organization is not something that we're used to with a capitalist society, that we're used to our bosses and the hierarchy and all that other stuff. And we really, as communists, need to be disciplined and adapt ourselves to what is needed from the party and ask ourselves, what does the party need out of us and to understand where our place is in it and educate ourselves and be ready to get out of our comfort zone. I think this is a really important work that highlights a lot of things. And the one thing I took away from it especially is the importance of the work that we're doing day in, day out, but how much we are expected to put into it. Our work is important because all of us together are going to build this up. We can't do it alone. We can't do it pulling in different directions. It's important for us to remember that the organization's only as good as its rank and file. So we all need to be doing the best work that we can for any of this to matter. When it comes to studying theory, I got this book and I immediately sort of read it cover to cover because I really enjoyed it. But we should avoid just reading to have a notch or rather like a trophy like, oh, I've read this many books. This is exactly the kind of book that you can't do that with and that you more or less have to reference as you come 
upon problems. So as we study and as we read all these texts, even the classics like State and Revolution or Critique of the Goethe Program, we could constantly be trying to reference them to solve specific problems that we have in our organizing or thinking through a theoretical problem. I wanted to echo that because reading is sometimes pretty difficult for me because I have ADD and focusing on a text can be really difficult sometimes, but I do my best to get through it. And like the other comments said, I use it more as a reference when different questions or issues come up. And I was like, oh, I have a book for that. The question of reading a lot of things and not just reading something to read something. I want to read a little bit from Lenin's On the Task of the Youth Leagues. He said, I must say that the task of the youth in general and of the young communist leagues and all other organizations in particular might be summed up in a single word, learn. And he says further on, but we have no need of cramming. We need to develop and perfect the mind of every student with a knowledge of fundamental facts. Communism will become an empty word, a mere signboard, and a communist a mere boaster if all the knowledge he had acquired is not digested in his mind. You should not merely assimilate this knowledge, but assimilate it critically, so as not to cram your mind with useless lumber, but enrich it with all those facts that are indispensable to the well-educated man of today. If a communist took it into his head to boast about his communism because of the cut and dried conclusions he had acquired, without putting in a great deal of serious and hard work, and without understanding facts, he should examine critically, he would be a deplorable communist indeed. Such superficiality would be decidedly fatal. If I know that I know little, I shall strive to learn more. But if a man says that he is a communist and that he need not know anything thoroughly, he will never become anything like a communist. As I was listening to what we were talking about, about democratic centralism, centralizing the power legitimately in the hands of leadership, legitimately demonstrating to the people they can really achieve their ends. Could you contrast that to me with the more fascist concept of a strong man? It's opposite. William C. Forster wrote a pamphlet called Communism versus Fascism. You should all get a copy of that. The big thing is that under a party of a new type, a Leninist party, the party is the collective. The collective comes first. The collective elects the leadership. The leadership is subservient to the party. That is opposite, obvious opposite of what happened in Mussolini's Italy, Nazi Germany, and in Trump's U.S. The leader was first. The party was second. That's the big difference. And so the leader became the leader, not even elected, but automatically because of their character, they became the leader whether it was of the German nation or the Make America Great or whatever. That's the total opposite of democratic centralism, where they elect the leadership, and the leadership is subservient to the party. There is also a very specific mental characterization of strong men or strong leaders in fascism versus communist movements. And studying the fascist movements and studying how they think and how they pretty much operate and how they see everything, their concept of strongmen is a physical characterization of strongmen, as in 
the people who are leading must be strong physically and mentally. They must be strong in their attributes and their focus. As to where the communist strong leaders is essentially people who are disciplined, people who are sturdy to their principles and priorities. Their focus is not on the specific one race or one group of folks as it is more towards the entirety of the working class. Throughout all of our studies of how a party should function, how democratic centralism works, there is a lot of patterns of thinking that keep cropping up when we compare how Marxist-Leninists think of politics and economy versus how the bourgeois do. Notice that all the bourgeois tendencies, whether they're liberals or the anarchists, they end up having dualistic thinking. Like, oh, we either have stuffy, slow, toothless bureaucracy protecting capitalists, or we have complete and utter abandon, no discipline whatsoever. And then you have Marxist-Leninists who are active, who are enthusiastic. They're not just completely negative, but positive. They actually work towards a goal rather than like the anarchists do. They work towards mostly satisfying their individuals rather than helping the community. And it's really important to take the part of self-criticism, take stock of our thinking. Is our thinking correct? Most of the time that I'm talking to comrades about the American Communist Movement, quite frequently the analysis and the discussion of Comrade Foster comes up quite a lot. And I think that his thoughts and his participation within the movement are an invaluable source of knowledge and maybe even things that help to better understand how the movement is today. And so I really recommend that comrades check out Comrade Foster's history of the CP because it served as an invaluable source of history and analysis. Take down notes like you're a student. That's what we all should be, students of Lenin, students of Marxism, Leninism. A couple of things. Number one, eight months ago, which is a long time ago, you may not realize it, we had a YouTube from the People's School called On Factionalism, June 2020. And I urge people to look up that specifically and listen to it. It's extremely interesting because it shows that the thing that could destroy any party, any communist party, is factionalism. And factionalism is a real danger. The other thing I wanted to mention is Facebook. Facebook is nothing more than an excuse for individualism. Look at me. Look at me. I have 40,000 friends. Big deal. Nobody's interested in you and what you eat for breakfast. We're not. Sorry. To you, it's a big thing, whoever that person is that thinks it's great. But that's the individualism in Facebook. The other thing is, why did we join this party in the first place? Comrades, you came to us. We didn't come to you. Remember that. You sought us out. You did a study. You looked at different groups. And you said you decided to join this party. Make sure you know what you're doing. You came to us, as I said. We didn't put no gun to you. So why did you join? The main reason should be only one, defending our class. That's the reason why you join this party. Not for any other party. We do great work in fighting against the oppression, 
of LGBT community, of fighting against oppression of people that are disabled? Yes, that's true. But that's not why you should join our party. You should join it because you want to defend our class. That's the simple thing. And those who work for a living, either by mind or body, that's our class. Wage earners, that's our class. Those are our people. That's our population. We're the best defenders of our class has always been the Communist Party. No other party is the best defender of our class than the Communist Party. That's why you should be in this party, for that reason. Every other reason is secondary and tertiary. It's important reason, but the main reason is the class struggle. That's what Marx said. That's what Lenin said. That's what all the people that came before us said, the class struggle. And I think it's important that people start stepping up to work for the party. The party is you, comrade. The party is not four or five people in an office in New York. The party is you. And you are the party, and they are you. It's one and the same. So you need to step up and take positions of responsibility in this party. We're all creating a machine, a communist machine, that eventually deal with elections and other things. But that's why the McCarthy period happened, in case you didn't know, in the 50s. The Communist Party was the third largest political force in the United States. That's according to all the history books that are written. They were the third. We had camps, comrade, for our children. We had youth groups. We had our own doctor's organizations, our own lawyers' organizations. We were the ones who set up the National Lawyers Guild, NLG, which is a progressive lawyers' organization today. We did all that. We had our own newspapers in every language you could think of, Yiddish, Polish, Ukrainian, Hungarian. We had those language newspapers. It was us, the communists, not anybody else, not the Trotskyites, not the anarchists, not the social democrats. It was the communists. That's all history. That's all facts. And that's why they came together, the Democrats and Republicans, and tried to destroy us in the 1950s. That's what they did. They put our people in jail, our leaders. Talk about leadership. If it wasn't for leadership, you would have had no Bolshevik movement in this country. They were all put in prison. Whether you want to talk about Henry Winston, Gus Hall, Eugene Dennis, even Earl Browder was put into prison. And so, therefore, you need to step up and carry on the struggle. Because once we're gone, the older people, it's your party, comrades. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.